Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Hope Through Grief. I'm Steve Smilski. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Marshall Adler. Hello, everybody. Hope you're doing well today. And for today's episode, we decided to go back and record part three of our episodes on uh, suicide. In part one, which was episode number nine, we talked about the statistics and the compelling numbers and how much it's been increasing in the recent past and how much more of an issue suicide is becoming. In our part two episode, um, episode number 13, we got into more specifics on whether it's possible to have known or to have stopped it. But we went into a lot of details, went into a few of the different stories. And for today's episode, since Marshall knows quite a bit more about suicide, I'm going to ask and pose a few questions to him and let him go ahead and give us his response back on some of these. And this time we kind of wanted to focus more around the issues of some of the other suicide survivor families and what some of them are doing, what they've experienced. Um, kind of give a, a different flavor or a different story from what we've concentrated on before. So with that, Marshall, I think for the first topic we'll start out with, I know I mentioned that my dad is a suicide survivor because my grandfather that I was named after committed suicide. And that was before he and my mom met. And he wouldn't talk to me about it. And I think I told the story where his grave was at a different location in the uh, cemetery. The question that I wanted to ask is through all the hundreds of people that you've spoken with in the last two years, suicide has that stigma of being an embarrassment or I should have known or we should have been able to stop it. Do people try and hide the fact of what the death was caused by? How many are, are open and up front with it? Steve, that's a uh, excellent question. And, you know, you are correct that I, I literally have talked to hundreds of suicide survivors, people that have lost a loved one to suicide. Obviously, we've been through grief share. We've gone through suicide survivors support groups. I had a previous podcast on my son, Matt's suicide. I've talked to many friends, acquaintances, professional colleagues who had issues with suicide or concerns about suicide. So for for better or for worse, probably for the rest of my life, I'm going to be the suicide guy. When there's a question that somebody has and they know me, they're probably going to reach out to me. So I've talked to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'll, let me just backtrack for a second. I know when we had Matt's funeral, we talked to our rabbi before the service and we told him that we think Matt would have wanted us to be advocates for suicide survivors the rest of our lives. And to do so, we had to be totally transparent and upfront about the issues of suicide and suicide survivors. So the rabbi could not have been better and applauded us for being so open and was incredibly uh, helpful 
throughout the service and, and obviously with grieving after. So my personal philosophy and the philosophy of our family has always been transparency, honesty, and that is the way to, I think, get the grieving process in a position where you're helping yourself, you're helping others. But every person is different. Let's tell you some stories. And all these stories are actual people that I've dealt with throughout the two plus years of talking to suicide survivors. I know there was one family that decided to list the obituary of their loved ones who died by suicide as a cardiac arrest. Really? It was a heart, heart situation. And when I talked to this family member years later, it actually was a point of humor. What I was told is that, well, if you do die by suicide, guess what? Your heart's going to stop. So it is a cardiac, a cardiac event. And they were sort of humorous about it. But obviously, the point that they were making was that they had, I think, progressed from the shock, not knowing what to do, to realizing if we had to do it over, we'd probably be more transparent and more honest with what the picture we should have said. And I will tell you, I, I do, I always have, just because I'm a news hound, I like reading newspapers. I've always read obituaries. And I have gotten to the point where I can read between the lines. Sometimes you'll see some family being very open and they'll just say it. Somebody had a mental health battle, that they lost the battle and died by suicide, but they won the war because they had a wonderful life. And then they'll have donations made to the Suicide Prevention Hotline or the uh, American Foundation for Prevention of Suicide or NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, different charitable organizations that deal with mental health and suicide. And I applaud those people for doing that. Other people, you can see that they're saying it, but they're not saying it. I will tell you in Matt's obituary and in Matt's eulogy that I wrote both of them, obviously, I didn't mention the word suicide. It was not pertinent to the issue. So although I'm saying we were very transparent I totally would defer and respect the actions of the family members they feel is appropriate. And we told everybody Matt died by suicide, but the eulogy and the obituary, that wasn't the point of it. It wasn't how he died, per se. It's how he lived. It's how he lived. And we weren't hiding anything. We weren't because we were telling everybody what, what it was. And obviously, our, our life has been based on that. So 
when I say that I can read obituaries and sort of read between the lines, I think the people that honor their loved ones without saying the word, I commend them and I hope that they will take that as a starting point to be very open about it. I think that the societal understanding of suicide has gotten much better over time. Like I've said many, many times that nobody chooses suicide. Suicide chooses them. And there is cutting edge medical research that shows that they've done brain scans of people with suicidal ideation and they see anatomical differences versus the brain scans of people that do not have suicidal ideation, which shows obviously that this is a brain disease. And, you know, I mentioned before that Senator John McCain, Senator Ted Kennedy both died from glioblastoma brain tumors that are brain diseases that can be found on an MRI. And my belief is that medical science will reach a point that they will say this finding on an MRI for a suicide, whatever that artifact is, is no different than finding a glioblastoma brain tumor or other indicative. You know, they can see uh, doing what I do as a workers' comp lawyer, I deal with a lot of medical issues. And there's cases that I've had where they've had brain scans of some of my clients and they have what's called white matter. White matter can be traumatically induced, but it could also be something like MS. It could be something like ALS. It can be I've, a- I've read some articles. On, right, right. And it you can, can actually see them in the scan. Right, right. It is something that they can see anatomical changes in the brain that's going to cause a fatal brain disease. And I think medical science will get that point with suicide, which I think will change how society views suicide. So instead of hiding it, they realize it was a brain disorder that took somebody's life. And that's why I think being upfront, transparent about it is the best, at least for our family, the best testimony that we can give and best tribute we can give to Matt because he spent his whole life helping people when he was here. And because he's not here, we have to continue the work to do that. And by hiding it, by not being upfront, you're not helping. I don't think you're helping society, but I don't think you're helping yourself either. I think that brings me to a second question. Okay. Early on, you talked about maybe you don't put it in the obituary, but you're upfront with it. Do you think hiding the fact or not wanting to admit that it was a suicide would affect you and delay you progressing through the grief process? I think it would affect me adversely because I've talked to many suicide survivors where they've told me that their loved one absolutely positively, 100%, no certainty, died by suicide. But 
other members of their family will not acknowledge that. They will say the person was murdered. It wasn't a suicide. It was a murder. And the people that I've talked to would say, that's not correct. It wasn't a murder. It was a suicide. And the reason they're saying murder, it's like their own thought process needs to rationalize the loss in a way that's just not truthful. And I think it's almost like putting a Band-Aid on a raging infection. You can say, well, I'm doing something here. I got a Band-Aid on this raging infection. You're doing something. It's not helping. If you've got a raging infection, you better culture that, see what the bacteria is, and get an antibiotic specific for that infection to treat it. Otherwise, that could kill you. A Band-Aid's not going to help that. So I think with people doing things that they think might be helpful to them in the short term or helpful to them trying to figure out why this happened, I do think it's almost like a Band-Aid on a raging infection because the underlying issues that affect the family are not going to be resolved by calling it a murder. You know, you could call a giraffe an elephant. It's not an elephant. It's a giraffe. You can call it something different than it is, but it is what it is. Do you think that borders on denial? It could be denial. It could be just a defense mechanism that maybe they don't even believe but it's a story that they will feel they can put out there to be a face that they can live with when they have to see people in society. You know, we all wear many hats and many faces and some of the faces are true and honest and some of the faces are a facade. It's kind of like not accepting I, I know some people think you have to accept responsibility because you didn't see it or you couldn't prevent it. But by saying somebody was murdered, it's like, oh, there was no way we could have known or helped. Which isn't think, true because exactly. you could say, why didn't I tell them to lock their door? Why didn't I tell them, do you really want to hang out with that person? Maybe they're not the best person to be with. Did you really need to go out and, you know, get that job that put you in a situation that was dangerous. These are all things that still could pop up even if it wasn't death by suicide. So that doesn't even answer the question that you think they're trying to get answered by making it socially more palatable for them to explain what happened. That makes sense. It's not an easy thing to talk about, especially when you think you're being judged when you're when you're talking or discussing it. I've read a couple of things about some people that um, – and this kind of gets back to the whole question of we don't know who it's going to affect. But people that have actually worked for the suicide prevention hotline have helped hundreds or thousands of people during their time there and then – actually committed suicide. Yes. I 
talk to a family that their loved one was the person answering the phone on the suicide prevention hotline to help people contemplating suicide, and that person died by suicide. So it's almost like a cancer researcher contracting cancer. They may know all about it. They may know what we got to do to treat it, what you can try to do to prevent it. It doesn't mean they won't get cancer. Like we, you know, growing up in Buffalo, you've heard me say this many times, we went to um, Buffalo Bills games with my father and my father's friends for years and years. And one of my parents' good friends was a uh, cancer researcher and he Roswell Park Memorial Institute is one of the top cancer research institutes in the country in Buffalo. And back in the 60s, I think it was 1964, when the Surgeon General came out and said, smoking is bad for you. And that's when they started saying, hey, don't smoke and cause cancer, lung disease, heart disease, hypertension, all these things. So he was the guy on the cutting edge research. Every time we went to a Buffalo Bills game, We'd pick them up and drive together, and we had to open up all the windows in the car. Why? Because he would, he would smoke a pack of cigarettes on, on the way to the game. He was the guy telling people, don't smoke. He knew it was really bad. He knew it would take your risk factors for cancer through the roof, but he smoked. So what I'm saying is, I think with the medical technology that I hope will find the diagnostic tools to diagnose the brain disease cancer and then find either therapeutics to treat it or a cure for it that will absolutely change society's view of it saying, yet this is no different than any other type of anatomical brain disease. You know, I know that there's a lot of um, football players now that have CTE, the chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy. They can only find those post-mortem after somebody dies. And there was a very famous football player, ironically, who was from San Diego named Junior, uh, Junior Seau. He was from San Diego played with the Chargers, huge hero in San Diego, where, where Matt died, and he died by suicide. And after his death, my understanding was they, they sort of figured out it probably was CTE. So I think for people listening to this that have had the loss of a suicide in their family, friends, acquaintances, hopefully you will realize that you were chosen now to be an advocate for your loved one, for your friend, for whoever took lost their lives in the suicide battle because they can't do it and you have to because you don't know who the next one is. People listening to this podcast now will be saying, oh, isn't that horrible? Isn't that terrible? 
I'm so glad that that hasn't touched me. I wish I could give you a guarantee and give you the secret sauce or secret handshake to make sure that will never happen to you. But I'll give you a newsflash. It doesn't exist. I've had people come up to me who never knew Matt, and they just were crying in my arms. And I knew they weren't crying about Matt. They never knew Matt. They were crying about somebody in their life that they were concerned could be a potential person who will die by suicide. And and you don't know. No, we don't know. I had another story that I had read some information on. It didn't have all the details, but one member of the family had attempted suicide and the family tried to protect them by engaging the Baker Act and having them, I think at 72 hours, they, they take them in. And in the meantime, another family member actually ended up committing suicide while they're trying to save the other one. I unfortunately have had firsthand experience with a family that dealt with that situation where one of the parents had attempted suicide and survived and had to obviously receive psychiatric care and one of the other family members came in to take control of the situation because obviously you're in such shock if somebody's going to attempt and, and survive because you're so fearful that they're going to take their life and this person was take charge type of person was able to do the necessary things in a very tight timeline to get the appropriate medical care to deal with a suicide attempt. And when the family was dealing with that situation, the person that had taken control to make sure that everything was done properly attempted and unfortunately took their life, which shows you how you never see it coming. I've, I've, Let me say this, of all the people that I've talked to, which again are hundreds of people that have lost loved ones to suicides, if they're willing to talk to me and I feel they want to keep on talking, I always ask the same question and I've universally gotten the same answer. And the question that I ask is, did you see this coming? And I've had people that lost loved ones to suicide where their loved ones had attempted multiple times and obviously not succeeded because they were still alive. And in spite of that history, they still didn't see it because they would be told by their loved ones, I'm so thankful that I didn't succeed in taking my life. I've got such an appreciation of every single day now. I love the support I love all the outreach. I love smelling the flowers. I love seeing the blue sky. I want to see the sunrise. I want to go see the ocean. I will never get that place again. 
and then they take their life. So everything that they were saying where this looked like a situation that would never occur did in fact occur. And then other times it's completely out of the blue. I've had people where you just could not see any type of warning signs, any type of issues, any type of red flags, and completely blindsided. So, you know, I've said this a million times that for all suicide survivors, you have to realize that if you could have stopped it, you would have. You didn't because you can't. And that is just something that I think is a difficult thing for people to realize because we all want to think, well, we're Americans, we're exceptional, we can do anything we want. That might sound good in a a TV commercial, but in reality, uh, you know, I just, I saw today that the Air Force is having a huge spike in suicides this year. Veterans die by suicide at about one an hour. That's every single day, every single week, every single month. This podcast, this episode will be about an hour. So the statistical odds are, as we're doing this podcast, there's a veteran taking their life by suicide. So all the power of the United States government, of the Veterans Administration, of the finest medical care system in the world, it ain't working. And so to think that a family or any person could change that, it's just not objectively correct. It doesn't mean you try, you don't try, but you got to realize this is like a glioblastoma brain tumor where you're saying, well, if my loved one gets a glioblastoma brain tumor, we're just going to say, we're not going to fall victim to this or we're going to beat it and, and, and we're going to do this. That's all great. It's all wonderful. But the odds are it's going to be fatal. So your answer jumped ahead at one of the other ones that I had. You know, is it possible to stop a suicide? And I had a second part to that. Can you talk them out of it? You know, I know there have been some people that actually been talking with them while they were contemplating. I've also, let me say this, the suicide prevention hotline is absolutely a resource that everybody in the country and everybody in the world should have access to. Obviously I've, lost my son by suicide, so I'm going to be very conscious of it. I think everybody should have that number on a speed dial on your phone or on the refrigerator because you never know when you're going to need it. And that, to me, is a resource that can save lives because, again, every suicide is different, and you might have different dynamics, different things. So you never, ever, ever want to ignore the opportunity to try to help some, 
body by getting them to a resource that's available. But I've also talked to many suicide survivors who were unfortunately present when their loved one was just going to take their life by suicide. And I know of one story where the loved one was trying to tell this person, you do not have to do this. You don't understand. You don't have to do this. And the person that took their life responded that you don't understand. I do have to do this. And which to me would would show that whatever the brain disease process that causes suicide to happen had overtaken this person. If that person called the suicide prevention hotline, would that have made any difference because it wasn't a loved one versus somebody else? I can't speculate on that, but this was a loved one that was talking to this person right there and they could not prevent it from happening. So what would be the odds of a total stranger on a phone line preventing it? You tell me. I know everybody thinks that if I'd been there, maybe I could have done something. Maybe that that'll help them understand that even if you were, you probably couldn't have changed anything. And it might've been, it might've been for that time period. It could have happened that way. But the question is, what about the next day, a week later, a month later, if in fact it's a brain disease and the brain disease process is continuing, that one episode doesn't mean that's the last episode. Well, you can't be on suicide watch for your whole life, right? You just, nobody can be there that much to... Unless you want to live in a bell jar. Well, we're kind of living in that jar right now. Right. Nobody likes it. And suicide rates are going up in that bell jar. <laughs> that's right. So that's not even safe. No. Um, I've read something about parents that they hadn't heard from their son or their daughter in quite a while, and they go to check on him. And they actually go into the room, they find him, and then they've actually found recordings on video of what happened. I don't even know how to process that as a, as a parent. What do you actually say to them? I knew a family, a very wonderful family, that they lost a child to suicide and they were concerned because there was no contact and they went to the apartment where their child lived and they saw the wrappings of the outer wrapping of a rope. And as soon as one of the parents saw this, she just turned to her husband and said, I, I know he's gone. 
and they were able to get the security video where they saw their child for the last time, literally right before he passed. And I remember talking to this person and I asked, you know, how devastating was that? And what they told me was that he was just tired. The fight of, again, if in fact this is a brain disease, that it's going to be progressive and relentless day after day after day after day. And these people that have that brain disease have to go out into society, act like functioning, productive human beings on the outside when they are fighting this demon brain disease on the inside, it has to be exhausting. And what this family member told me about the loss of her child is that when she saw that video, which was the last moments her son was on this planet, she just said he was tired. And in some ways, I think that gave her solace that she knew this was a progressive brain disease, just like a glioblastoma brain tumor that was going to be fatal. And there was nothing that medical science or the family could have done to stop it. I've heard that word several times, tired. Yes. As a description of, he's just tired. A daily struggle, a daily grind. I also saw something where a family lost their um, loved one to suicide and ended up being at the hospital that their loved one was actually born in. Yes. Now, that, that may not be too unique. I know we actually took Jordan into the same hospital that he was born in and he was misdiagnosed there. He didn't, he didn't die there, but. That's kind of uh, kind of a weird situation, isn't it? It was as if the loss of loved one by suicide isn't tragic enough. The fact that the person decided to end their life where it began is one of the pieces of the puzzle that will probably never be able to be answered by the family because was it a good thing because the person said this is just the circle of life and I just want to close the circle but my time on this planet is over and I'm fine with it or were they trying to make some other statement I don't know that you know I've said before that Anybody that loses a loved one to suicide, it's like having a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle thrown on your dining room table. And for the rest of rest of your life, you're going to try to put the piece together. And I feel like we've put, in, we've put together about 100 of those thousand pieces with Matt's passing, which means there's 900 pieces left that we haven't been able to figure out yet. 
How many will we be able to figure out over the course of my lifetime is to be determined. So how, how do you figure that one out? Why did that person decide to take that action when they were in the process of passing by suicide? It's one of those questions that may never be answered. And yes, that would be a issue for the family in their journey of grief. No two ways about it. Yes, uh, Marshall, I, I can see that. So Marshall, as we wrap up this part three episode of suicide, it's it's easy to see it's a very complicated loss. There's a lot of surrounding issues, not only for the person who commits suicide, but the family that's left behind. Um, society has a view of it or has had a view of suicide in the past. It makes it very difficult for those who are survivors uh, to deal with a lot of different things as they work through their grief. Could you kind of give us your thoughts on on what we've talked about today and, and just do a wrap up for today's episode? Thank you. Steve, I, I just think that the whole issue of suicide is so complex and so uh, multifaceted that for me, I take a two-pronged approach. You know, I'm a lawyer. I, doing what I do as a workers' compensation lawyer, I deal with medical issues all the time that I have to figure out what happened from a case and what the medical evidence is. So with suicide, survivors, and prevention, I'm constantly looking at the medical aspect of medical technology, cutting edge, diagnostic, therapeutics, and prevention. But also, I know medical science does not have all the answers. There are suicidologists that make their professional careers dealing with suicide prevention. I, I thank God for those people, but they obviously have not been able to prevent it because suicide rates are going up. So talking to people that have their own personal opinions concerning the loss of their loved one, to me, is another important factor to be studied. And for me, it's another important factor on my journey to try to do as much as I can to help suicide survivors and to help suicide prevention so other people would not have to endure the loss that our family has. So I hope, Steve, that this episode today has given our listeners some insight into 
my family's journey in general and my journey in particular. Again, I've talked to hundreds of suicide survivors and hopefully I'll live long enough to come up with some type of answer that could help society prevent this or treat this in a way that we don't have now. So again, I want to thank all the listeners today for listening to our episode. Steve, I want to thank you for being a great co-host and be willing to discuss this issue because you know it's very important to me. So again, I want to thank our listeners for listening so much. And we hope that today's episode was informative and helpful. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marshall, for for all of your insight on suicide and for all the information that you've gathered from all of those. If you've spoken to, I know that's not easy to talk to other survivors. They all are looking for answers, and it's hard when you're trying to find your own. We hope everybody enjoyed today's episode, part three on suicide. And please, if you've got any questions for us, please send them in through uh, the website, hopethroughgrief.com. And we'll try and get your questions up and provide answers in the next uh, couple upcoming shows. Thank you for listening and everyone have a great week. Thank you for joining us on Hope Through Grief with your co-hosts, Marshall Adler and Steve Smelsky. We hope our episode today was helpful and informative. Since we are not medical or mental health professionals, we cannot and will not provide any medical, psychological, or mental health advice. Therefore, if you or anyone you know requires medical or mental health treatment, please contact a medical or mental health professional immediately.